Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling Pod. And I'm, I'm very excited about this week's guest. His name is Robert Jackman. Uh, he writes for The Spectator, among other publications. And he's a young person. I mean, he's going to give me the, the lowdown on how young people... <laughs> I, I'm sounding like Prince Charles now, aren't I? Um, how, young, how the young are coping with this lockdown. Uh, Rob, welcome to the Delling Pod. Thanks. Sorry, the the intro threw me because I, I mean I have grey hair. I mean I'm, I'm you know I'm younger than some guests, but I'm not you know I'm not Generation Y or anything like that. But well, how old are you? Um, I'm just over thirty. I won't tell you the second number, but yeah. I I still consider that a young. Okay, right. You, That's fine. So yeah, yeah. You, you're right. You're not you're not fresh out of uni. No, I, I'm not. Do you know what? I, ju- I just when act I, like it. You know. Uh, when I met you in the Spectator offices, I genuinely thought you were about I don't know. 25 but I suppose it's I suppose it's a function of the fact that when you get past an, a certain age all the bloody young people look the same they really do they look kind of uh naive and unformed and and you know disgustingly yeah. free of care and free of wrinkles and and you just envy them there <laughs> what you imagine to be their fulfilled rich exciting lives but maybe that's not the case um, I mean, I have to say, but I think we're all fit. That's how I feel. I, you know, I, I see younger people and I think the same thing. And I was saying to a friend the other day, like I've now got to that phase in your life where if you watch sort of Premier League football or something like that, they all look young, you know, and when you're a kid, you watch football and they're adults and you suddenly realise you've hit that point where, you know, you're quite a bit older than most of them. Wait till you get to the stage, Rob, when you when women stop, young women stop looking at you, they, they look I mean, not 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 they ever did particularly, but but when they completely blank you, you don't actually exist. They look they look through you. It's kind of it's like being a ghost. Um, okay, and that's I kind of that. that that's that's kind of freaky. Um, yeah, <laughs> all sorts. But I, of, I think at the moment I'm I, carry on. I'm probably going to turn forty in lockdown if this current pace continues. Anyway, so you know, it's I I think it's doesn't really matter so much, does it, when we're all trapped indoors? No. One of the things I, I wanted to talk to you about, um, which you let slip before we started recording this... I did. ...was that you were a Remainer in, in Brexit. Are you... I was. It all seems so long ago. You know, and I, I wasn't... It does, it does. And then, you know, I sort of left it behind on the 24th of June or whatever. You know, I was never FBPE... I never did a second referendum march or anything like that. But yeah, I voted Remain. I should have never really changed my mind that that wasn't the best course. But, you know, there'd been a referendum. Um, So I was one of few. I was sort of on on staff for about 18 months at The Spectator. And I was one of the only Remainers there, I think. Um, You know, but I'm also, as I said when I spoke to you earlier, you know, I'm also a lockdown sceptic. Well, cynic, perhaps. I don't know. But, you know, and I, I think those two tribes don't go, you know, don't always go together. So I'm suddenly finding myself nodding along to people like Nigel Farage. You know, I'm doing some work with Toby. Um, I've always enjoyed your writing because I find right. you funny. But, you know, a lot of it I've disagreed with. And now it's suddenly, uh, you know, it's nice to have kind of, yeah, political kinship. I didn't okay. know you disagreed with me. That's, I don't like people who disagree with me. That's wrong. How, how could anyone, how could an intelligent person well, disagree with me? I, well, I, I don't know. I've got a theory on you. I think there are two James Dellingpoles because I, I read some stuff that you read in the, uh, you know, your excellent television yeah. reviews for The Spectator. I read the things you write about people like Grayson Perry 
you know, and then I think there's the James Dellingpole that writes in Breitbart, who's probably the one I disagree with. But, you know, that's kind of... Oh, OK. By by. Yeah, but, but um, I mean, we are the same person. And I suppose <laughs> what what I find, actually, since, since, since you've, you've taken me down that alley, is that I notice this on Twitter a lot. In fact, I notice it in comments below the line on blogs and stuff as well is that when people disagree with an ideological point you make, for example, the fact that I'm pro-Donald Trump, say, or I'm a climate change Mm. sceptic, is that rather than address your ideological position, you know, demonstrating why actually you're wrong to be a fan of Donald Trump and and, and showing, giving examples of, of why he's a bad thing, a ditto climate, what they do instead is that they attack your style or they say that you're sh- you're shrill or they 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 go for the ad hom yeah. rather than the argument yeah and i mean this and is, this is what i'm getting on facebook at the moment you know i post about why i don't think the lockdown should continue in its current form you know and sort of acquaintances will just openly say oh you're just kind of spouting right wing propaganda you're selfish you want people to die you know, and it, it's really difficult sometimes just to have a conversation with these people and just to kind of acknowledge, look, these are the facts. Let's di- yeah, let's discuss what the facts are. Let's not jump straight to these kind of grand moral interpretations. Mm. Yes. Well, were you there must have come a point where you because I, I think at the beginning we were all a bit confused about where we should stand on this issue, weren't we? I, th- I think probably we all went through yeah. a stage where we thought, well, this 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 virus coming out of China is is frightening and, and something needs to yes. be done. Uh, what was the turning point for you? That's a good question, because I remember there was that week when everything got really scary and it started to resemble, you know, the Russell T Davies Doctor Who when they'd bring on that newsreader and they'd say, oh, this is breaking out. You know, it started to feel like that, didn't it? Every time you turned on the news, the numbers were going up and then Rishi Sunak was doing the bailout and you thought, you know, crikey, this is pretty serious. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I felt a kind of, I felt something, you know, when Boris came on television, looked straight down the camera and said, look, you need to stay at home. I don't know. I think that just set something off in me, my, my inner teenager. Yes. And I just felt, actually, I don't think this is right. You know, I'm not looking. They'd shut the bars, you know, they'd shut the theatres, they'd shut the cinemas. Um, everyone was cowering inside anyway. And I thought, you know, there's not much I could do even if I wanted to. You know, I'm not looking to go out and hug people in Trafalgar Square or whatever, but I just felt, why am I being told, effectively, that I cannot do anything... Yes. ...in case the worst happens? You know, and I felt... You know, you know what it's like at The Spectator. There's a lot of people that know Boris well, and they always say, look, he loves freedom, and you've got all these sort of stories about how... um, you know, there used to be a sign outside the Spectator office, didn't they, saying no bikes should be parked here. And apparently he used to relish kind of chaining his bike up to yes. that. You know, he's always kind of liked breaking these petty rules. And, yeah, I don't, the, the night he came on television, I just felt something about this doesn't feel right. And I went for a walk the next day, you know. I went for a walk immediately, pretty much after the lockdown announcement. And it just felt quite chilling you know there were police cars slowly patrolling around central london you sort of felt that if you were outside everyone was suspicious of you you know the few people that were outside were wearing masks and they were carrying on like there was mustard gas in the air that you know they could double over at any minute um everything was shut down 
you know, it was it was really quite scary. And I went for a walk because I, I live in central London. I walked through Soho the next morning and it was pretty sunny. And you, there were so many police around and you just felt, you know, if I stop moving for a second, I'll be quizzed as to what I'm yes. doing. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is, but I've got a few friends that feel the same and they're not terribly political. And one thing I think I've got in common with, I grew up in Norfolk, small town. You know, I got to London as soon as I can. And one of my friends who feels the same way about lockdown, right. he's a Kiwi, he's a New Zealander. And I think there's something about, you know, we chose the busy life. We actively moved to London, you know, because we wanted to be able to meet people, you know, to socialise, to have drinks. You know, if I, I've got relatives that pretty much live in self-isolation anyway. That's how old people live in Norfolk. That's how some young people live, to be honest. But, you know, so I think it's that I chose this life. Like, I came to London to be free and to have fun. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, look, I should still be able to go to Weatherspoons. Well, maybe I should now. Um, but it, I just felt like a dog being brushed the wrong way. I think when I heard that announcement, I was like, "This yes, something about so this is not right." So you're bullshit detector. Just, just, just. It, it sensed something was off. And do you know what? Yeah. Just going back to that, I think that point you've made about lots of spectator people knowing Boris. I mean, I know Boris. Um, I've known him since since our university days. University. And, yeah. And I remember. I think was it two years ago at the Spectator party. Oh, th- th- that time where, where it seemed like his aspirations to be prime minister had been knocked back for the final time. He'd been, he'd been sort of brushed aside by the kind of conservative hierarchy. And he had that little boy lost stroke hangdog look that he has sometimes. Yeah. And, and uh, the fawn and I found him in a corner of the park. Well, he re- I, obviously people still wanted to talk to him, but he was definitely not the man of the moment. And he was looking sad. And we came over and consoled him and said, there, there, Boris, it's all going to be OK. Um, so I'm fond of him because he has a, an aspect of his personality. And I'm sure this is what girls find so attractive. I mean, apart from his kind of blonde hair and stuff and his kind of uh, that sort of... S- weird virility he has yeah, um, um, this, this, you know this, this sort of that sense of I don't want to be disgusting here but just spunk waiting, waiting to burst out of him and apparently he's always been like that I mean apparently some, somebody yeah. said he's, he never had to have a wank um, from, from, from mid-teens onwards because he's always had available sex from he said that I think this, this is a quote that's come up in one of his old columns um I've sort of seen it floating around Twitter. I think I've muted it. I'd rather not read it. But yeah, I've seen it around. I agree. One doesn't want want to read it, but 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 nevertheless, it is no. there now in people's heads, and I've put it there, and and there it is. There's no escape from it. But um, I was listening to a uh, an interview. Uh, Peter Hitchens was on the Mike Graham show on Talk Radio. Yeah, and. Mike Graham made this rather similar point about Boris. He said, but everyone knows that Boris is really reluctant to have this authoritarianism. He just doesn't like it. He feels very uncomfortable with it. He's a libertarian. And Hitchens said, made the killer point. Well, if he feels that way, why doesn't he stop it? It's this idea that actually this is another example of this. Have you ever read Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate? I have not. It's the kind of twenty. It's the kind of twentieth century war and peace, and it's and it's set in the Soviet Union during the Second World War. Mm. And Stalin, Stalin appears as this character 
off camera, so to speak. So Stalin is a presence. You never, I don't think you ever actually meet him, but you see the effects of his of his tyranny uh, on these on this community of intellectuals and scientists in Moscow during the war, and. As yet another relative is carted off to the gulag, they, what they always say is, if only Comrade Stalin knew about this, if, if he knew what was going on, he would be appalled. Uh, if only we could get a message for him to, 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 to show him the terrible things that are being done in his name, which he'd disapprove of. I rather feel that, not that I'm comparing Boris with Stalin exactly, but I rather feel that same way, that he's been given this free pass. It's, ultimately, it's his name on the, on the desk. He's the he's the he's the boss. The buck stops with him, and if he can't stop this lunacy happening, then whose responsibility is it? He's the prime minister. He is. He is. And I I think, I mean, what worries me though is this is popular, as you know. You know, it's most people don't see this the way we do. And I don't know if you get the Politico playbook email. It's one of these sort of very good emails about what's going on in Westminster. But they had a section in there the other day about how pretty much every day in Downing Street, you know, you have the vote leave team uh, presenting graphs, really detailed stuff, polling, public opinion. And it just consistently shows that people support this thing. You know, particularly the kind of people that Boris brought on board in December to win the election. Yes. It's really popular amongst the working class. It's really popular amongst, um, you know, in the north, in the red wall seats. And I've, cause I, I mean, I was out of London actually a few weeks ago. And, you know, some of, some of my family, you know, they're, they're sort of Brexiteers. They vote Brexit Party. They vote Conservatives. You know, they like Nigel Farage. And I tried to sound them out. And I think, you know, people of that background, they're very difficult to predict which way they're going to fall on this. Yes. You know, they're just as likely to be the sort of, you know, Piers Morgan kind of hardline communitarians as they are to be, you know, your sort of Daniel Hannan freedom types. I think maybe it's probably 75, 25. And that's what really worries me, because I think, you know, I do think this is a mess and we're stuck in this situation potentially for a long time, but it's not a mess electorally. Yes. You know, this, this could really benefit the Conservatives, but it goes back to that old thing. And we're going to sound like, you know, lefties having... But what is the point of having political power if you do the wrong things with it? You know, pragmatism, ideology and all of that. And, you know, the other thing that worries me, I think, is the way he's probably looking at this, this is a chance to brand the Tories as the party of the NHS for a generation. Heaven help us. And if you remember... I know. Well, if you remember back in November, you know, October, when they were gunning for the election, the only voices in Cabinet that said, let's not go for a general election are the ones that cited the NHS... And they said, you know, it's winter, the NHS is on people's minds, this could swing it for Labour. You know, for years this has been seen as the Tories' Achilles heel. It's one of the very few issues where they're electorally vulnerable. You know, he's probably thinking, look, get this right, and we will be the party of the NHS. You know, we will be forever associated with the NHS and clapping for the NHS and all of that sort of stuff, and we'll be massively in debt... Um, you know, we'll have young. You know, we'll have lots of problems, but we will be the party of the NHS. And you just wonder: is that a price worth paying? Because I mean, but I, I can see how that would be persuasive. If you're in Downing Street, you know, you want to be there as long as you can. You want to win elections. You've now got a competent Labour leader to go up against, so you're no longer just up against the Corbyn clique. Yes. And I think he's seeing this as a chance to kind of, yeah, there will be there are electoral that's, benefits. That's and this is the problem, you know. It's such an epic, epic problem. Funnily enough, I was having a conversation with one of my old friends, Quentin Letts, mm. who is, you know, 
old, old time, old school political hand. Um, he's been reporting on Parliament for, well, since we were young journalists. Um, uh, he did the parliamentary sketch when he was when he was in his early 20s. Um, so that would be 30, 30 years ago, 30, 35 years ago. Um, and he was explaining the situation to, to me from the perspective of some, you know, somebody who, who's interested in politics, which I'm not really, no. by the way. Um, and he said to me that the rumour is that Boris fully understands that what a, what a mess that he's got himself into. And he would like to dig the country out of this mess, but he cannot he cannot effect change while the people while the populace thinks the way it does, and that this was this was the the reason for the messaging of his rather lackluster speech on on Sunday night, where he was talking where where, where the, the government changed its messaging from stay at home what is it save lives stay to, alert now isn't it yeah. stay stay alert. So there was a subtle yes. shift, and it was the, the, from the notion that government was telling you what to do for for the the burden of of, of, of how to behave to being being placed on the individual. Yeah, and I think, and to a degree, that's happening. To a degree, they have been clever there. Yeah, because we're seeing it now, aren't we? Yeah. We're seeing people are starting to those who want to push the boat out and 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 risk. Well, I don't consider it a risk at all, but to go out into the world more are feeling empowered by this new move. But yeah. going back to Quentin's point, I I don't like politics. I don't like the idea that politics is the art of the possible. I believe that politics should be about doing the right thing. And it seems to me that the the quadrumvirate and, and the broader cab cabinet seem to have made the same political calculation that previous disastrous governments have made, which is basically this. We are prefer prepared to let the economy just go down in flames so long as we win the next election. That's what, you know, so long as we can, we can carry on our reputation that we've, we've, we've earned recently as the party of the NHS. And when you cut us, when you cut us in half, you will find NHS uh, like a stick of rock. That's that's what we care about, and the economy can go hang, or, or rather, the economy is a secondary consideration. Now that that appalls me as somebody who believes in well, somebody a who's an ideologue, and b believes in free markets, uh, free speech, a free free country. Yeah, but I think it's become it's now seen as very wonkish. It's seen as very nerdy to talk about the economy. Really, and we've you know we've had this in foreign policy. I think so, you know, and I think. You know, you look at someone like Christian Nemitz. Yes. And he sort of stood alone several times, you know, even on even on the Brexit debate. And I'm not just trying to be a sort of sulky Remainer or EEA type here. But, you know, I think we've got used to just dismissing the economy as seeing it as, you know, and I always remember that story. I think it was Anand Menon. He was doing some sort of focus group on the EU and it was in the run up to the referendum. Um and he was talking about the potential hit on GDP and what did voters think of that. And one of them said, look, it's not my GDP. I don't feel the economy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's become very removed from that. And I think, look, there's, there's some legitimacy there. You know, you, if the, as the FTSE goes up and down, most people in the red wall seats don't feel that effect in their daily lives. But they will feel this. You know, we're looking, I think, at a severe debt for the next, what, 10, 15 years? Oh, yeah. That is just, 
I'm I'm currently in I'm currently in it's scary burying my head under the pillow make 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 bad stuff go away mummy uh, and and hoping that when I wake up in the morning it will all have gone yes when you say ten or fifteen years my yes. god that is that is frightening um so okay mm. so we've got these we've seen this ourselves these this this red wall these people that well. In my case, anyway, I was championing as as the real voice of Britain, the kind of common sense voice of Britain, the backbone. People who understand that yeah. that, that British sovereignty is much more important than than allowing ourselves to be have rules made for us by by this supranational, corrupt, sclerotic state across the pond. Uh, yada yada yada. Uh, uh, these people have gone from from heroes to to zeros in my eyes because they seem to be missing a fairly obvious point that the economy isn't just billionaires in top hats smoking cigars and 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 um and, and having expensive houses while the rest of us can't get on the property ladder the economy is everything the economy not least is is the ability of the welfare state to to bankroll these people's lifestyle in, in some cases and, and in others to enable them to have have functioning businesses yeah and I think it's it's not just the economy. I mean, I think the thing that scares me is just how little discussion there is about the moral value of freedom in itself. You know, a few weeks ago, we'd effectively criminalised going outside. And you had people talking about phoning their neighbours and reporting people to the police. You know, you were having people moved on in parks for sitting down on a bench. And I think even leaving the economy aside, they're just, apart from a few voices, you know, Jonathan Sumption was very good on this, the former Supreme Court judge, you know, there really didn't seem to be a sense that people should be free to make responsible decisions. And by all means, you know, nudge them towards making those decisions. Like you look at what, you, you know, what's going on in Sweden. They are social distancing. They're, you know, they are mm. shielding older people. But you can still go to a restaurant, you can still meet in groups of 50, I think, which is quite a lot. I mean, um, you know, you can still go to churches and things like that. I, th- I just, it, it, people should be free to exercise some moral discretion. Yes, well, I agree. So, and the decision seemed to be that, no, we can't have that. This situation is too important that you cannot be relied upon to make your own decision. Yeah. So it's interesting that you seem to think more like a policy wonk than I do, um, or at least you understand that strain of thinking. So what, what you're, you seem to be suggesting is that, okay, the economy doesn't play that well with focus groups because people can't really relate to it, even though, of course, it affects every aspect of their lives. But that's, that's the, I, that, that is the stupidity, the product of, of generations of dumbing down in our education system and, and, of course, having a left-wing media and having the BBC and so on. So, so people don't understand free markets or anything. Um, but at the same time, you're suggesting that maybe... People would be receptive to a message about uh, the importance of of individual autonomy, of being able to make decisions about our own lives and how to do the right thing, and that maybe this is the message that the government should should have been pushing, or, or at least their kind of their nudge department should have been pushing. So why haven't they done it? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think. I mean, I think they opted for the lockdown when they did because the numbers were so grave, you know, and I think there was probably an honest perception that if you didn't do this, we'd be in serious trouble. And I think 
Well, wait. The, 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 the theoretical numbers look, yes, look scary. Yeah, you know, we're, which, we're not talking about real numbers. No, no. Um, you know, and there's since been doubt cast on that. But even leaving that aside, I think the thing is, though, when they took on, you know, when they went into lockdown, they effectively took on the impetus. You know, whatever happens next is their decision. And I think, you know, the government is... It, it, it was decisive, but it wasn't effective. They very quickly said, look, we're just going to pretty much nationalise the whole payroll. You know, we're going to ask everyone to stay at home. Yes. And you think, yes, that's decisive, but is it effective? And what do you do now? You know, it's a bit like, you know, the philosophical tr- dilemma, the trolley problem. And the whole thing is we don't like, you know, where you've got the, um, if you pull the lever, the trolley will go down the other route and it will kill fewer people. Yes. But it will be your choice where it goes, you know. And I think what that problem shows is we don't like making these choices. You know, we don't like it when the impetus is on us because all of a sudden you feel callous and you feel guilty. And I think by putting us in the lockdown, they put us in a situation where it's now up to the government to make the next step. Right. Yes. And they're not really, you know, they're really scared about taking that next step. Mm. Yes. I mean... And it's just, it's, it's extending as of you know, default, which isn't right. You know, it's, it, I was, I was trying to explain this to my mum why I feel so frustrated about it. And, you know, we were told that we need the lockdown to flatten the curve and to protect the NHS, right? Yes. That seems to have been achieved, but it's continued. And it made me think years ago when I worked in a think tank, I had um, a boss and, you know, a colleague left and the boss said, oh, you know, you're going to temporarily take on 50% their responsibility until we recruit again. Uh, you won't get a pay rise because things are tight at the moment, but don't worry, we'll recruit um, soon and you can hand off all that responsibility. Then they recruited and it's like, well, actually, this person has a different skill set. So we want you to keep doing what you're doing, you know, and it's just that sense of, look, we've been cheated here. We went along with this because we wanted to stop the NHS being overrun like it was in Italy. And then it gets extended and you, you just sort of feel that, I don't know, do, do you not feel tricked? Like there's an element of sort of school discipline about this, isn't there? It's like we, we went along with this because we consented to the premise. The premise has now changed, but there's been no grown up discussion as to what comes next. Yes, I think it's called, it's, it's called mission creep, isn't it? We, we, we see it again yes. and again from yes, government. Exactly. We, saw, we saw it in, in yeah. Afghanistan. Do you remember originally yeah. we were going there, I think, what, to protect girls i think to protect the rights of girls and something which is always a and then i think we it got confused with things like the opium opium produced there and all, all manner of of reasons were advanced yeah. it changed all the time to I, I suppose it's a version of the sunk cost fallacy that that it we're is. in yeah, there yeah. now so we just we just make up reasons uh as and when to to justify the, the this this mistake we've made yeah that's the thing. It, it, I f- it's I, changing. I feel like it's, we're being we're paying the price for for their initial mistake, and and they're punishing for us us for their their bad decision. Yeah, I th- I think there's there's definitely an element in truth truth in that. But one thing I will say, I mean, you know, ever since this kicked off, I've you know I've been going for multiple walks. I've been meeting friends at weekends. I've I think I've been sensible, you know. I I um, but. I've been a bit of a lockdown breaker. Yes, and tell me, really tell me, tell me. Well, my, percep- my perspective was, you know, you make a bet in life. And my bet was that I have a very small flat in central London. Yeah. And it's quite high rent, but I was happy to be there because I can walk to work. I can go to the theatre in the evening. I can be at any London airport in 45 minutes. And I thought, well, you don't need a big flat because you're going to be out in the evening with friends, you know, at galleries, at bars. And then all of a sudden... 
everything like that shuts down and you realise, well, what am I left with? I'm left with a very small flat in an empty street in central London. And I just found the situation really difficult. And, I, you know, luckily I've got a few friends that feel the same way. So we would just meet for drinks at weekends, you know, maybe three or four of us. And the first time I did it, maybe, maybe this is in my head, because remember, this is at the height of the lockdown. So maybe I was being paranoid. But the first time I did it, you know, you really felt that you could get arrested if the police, you know, saw you with a bag of wine going to a friend's house. And when my friend came here, I would leave my door on the latch so he wouldn't have to knock at the door. I'd just say, text me when you're two minutes away. The door will be on the latch. You walk in as if it's your own house. You know, and you suddenly realise that you're sneaking around so as not to attract the attention of neighbours or law enforcement or anything like that. And, you know, there was just this kind of really dark 10 days when you felt I'm not really living in a liberal democracy anymore. Yes. Yes. And, you know, at the same time, it, it was it was quite nice just to sort of raise the glass with someone. But then even then, we thought this was going to be over in 10 days. We thought we'll be out of lockdown soon. And then it's just it's carried on. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I've got a lot of close friends that I reached out to and said, look, would you like to meet for a drink? And they just said, no, absolutely not. And some of these are people, some of them people, you know, actually, you know, they, they're sort of right wing, libertarian leaning. Really? And I was saying to you earlier, you know, there's, you know, yeah, there's a big difference between people that walk the walk and talk the talk. Because I'm, well, I'm not looking to break this for the sake of it, you know, and if they're happy and content sitting in their flats on house party app, whatever, fair enough, you know. And I, I listen to Peter Hitchens and he always says, well, look, I'm not going to go out and break this thing because I'm fundamentally a law abiding citizen, but it's a bad law. But I, I mean, I was prepared to break it. And I think the ways that you break it are never really going to add to the transmission chain. You know, every time you go in the supermarket, you have an interaction with one or two people, don't you? Mm. Um, so, you know, you think if you just see one or two people at the weekend, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe someone with a big science brain amongst your special friends will write in and explain why I was actually being really reckless. But I just took the calculation. I thought, look, 99.9% .9 of people are following this thing. If I do what I need to do to kind of stay sane, stay happy, it really isn't a big problem. And, you know, the other thing is you look at the people on social media that were saying, stay indoors, save lives. So many people I know in London had just cleared off to the country to live with their families. Yes. In, you know, big rural houses. Now, I could have done that, but I've got elderly relatives. And I thought, actually, you know, I'm in good health. I thought I will stay in London. I'll stay in the plague pit. At the time, of course, it was the kind of corona capital mm -hmm. of the UK. We're not anymore. We've been usurped. But, you know, I stayed here because I thought it would be unethical to take the virus with me and go to rural Norfolk. So I kind of felt I'd sort of done my bit in a way. And that if I saw some other, you know, 20, 30 somethings at the weekend, it was hardly the end of the world. But some people felt very differently. You know, I gave some anonymous quotes to a newspaper. I was, you know, they, they were doing a piece on people that were breaking the lockdown. Yeah. And I gave them about 800 words and, you know, they paid it for me. They published it without my name on it, which I was actually quite happy with. Because, you know, you just you got to be careful with these things. Um, and I went on there the other day and I read the comments and it was just people saying this guy should be executed. This guy should be paraded on television. You know, if he gets corona, good riddance. And I just, you know, I, you and I know, like pe people morph into a sort of slightly demonic version of themselves on the internet sometimes. But is that really how people feel? So was, there, what, was this in... That someone that meets... Was this in the mail that you wrote this piece? 
No, it was another newspaper. So they, they you know, you sometimes see it on Twitter where people say, I'm looking for case studies. I'm yeah, doing yeah, a feature sure. about it. And someone had said, yeah, yeah, I'm doing a, a feature about people that are still socializing. And I, I sort of DM them and I said, look, I, I can give you some stuff. And immediately, I didn't even think of this. They just said, oh, you know, it can be anonymous, by the way. And I was like, well, here you go. Everything I told them was true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I gave them about 600 words. Uh, they mashed it up. You know, obviously they zoom in on the quotes that make you sound a little bit more reckless. But that's fair enough. That's the, the you know, that's the game we play. Uh, but the below the line reaction, it was just, it was just nasty. And like, you know, I'm a pretty middle of the, I'm a theatre critic, interviewer at The Spectator. You know, I don't get involved in polemical stuff. So I'm not used to that. And I was reading these comments below the line. I was just like, Jesus, you know, people, people are angry out there. Yeah, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing. I've, I've had an insight into what it's like to kind of... St- and that, that's not even putting my name to something. You probably think I'm being a bit, you know, a bit limp complaining about it here. Well, the thing is, I'm always getting trouble into trouble from my wife and children for saying stuff that I think is, well, it's kind of normal. Every, every normal person thinks this stuff and then discovering that no, not every normal person thinks this stuff, that it's really quite out there. I suppose the classic example of this was when I, when I went on the record about having, uh, for, for the Isabel Oakeshott biography of, of Dave, you know, for Call Me Dave. And I talked about, you know, about my happy memories of, of smoking dope listening to Supertramp albums with with Dave Cameron mm. at Oxford. And I, uh, Isabel said to me, now, now, are you sure you want to go on the record with this? And I was thinking, well, it it happened. It's It was true. And I don't think, you know, it's not like everyone smokes these days anyway. And it's not a big deal. And I think it, it just makes Dave come across as more human and likable, frankly. So what's yeah. the harm in it? And then... I remember when the the book came out and it was serialized in the in the, the the mail and on the front page of the mail it said and this journalist is the Dellingpole is the first person to go on the record as having taken drugs with the prime minister and I was thinking I don't really recognize this scenario what's happened is that somebody has told a, a rather sweet anecdote about something that happened a long long time ago and it's being turned into this it's being sort of written in block capitals as it were and it's shrieking at you this is a scandalous thing and here we are declaring it to be a scandalous thing by putting it on the front page of the newspaper yeah. um so anyway yeah I, I'm always getting myself into trouble because I think I think that telling the truth should never be considered a, a, yeah. a, a bad thing and I, I think people should do it more often and I think the world would be a better place yeah. if they did and we should um, lo- you know we sh- you, you will think this as well but we should be more tolerant of people's right to hold different views you know you look at things yeah well, I yeah. mean if you're in a workplace and you know someone holds a religious or social view that you just cannot you know make head nor tail of and if it doesn't affect you why does it matter and I think you know we're getting to that point actually where people do expect some level of like ideological safety and comfort when they go to work mm. well well yeah I mean... and it depends you know if if someone believes in a, a batshit conspiracy theory that could affect their ability to do the job right you know if they genuinely think you know uh but well, i don't know actually gay that, marriage that's... or this or that you know why does it matter i mean yeah it's interesting you're showing your colors there i don't i i i, I cannot think of a batshit conspiracy theory which would render anyone unsuitable for doing a job i i, I think ah. people tend to compartmentalize right what do you what do you what do you just give me a come up with a batshit conspiracy theory that would stop stop someone 
being a, I don't know, a, a programmer, say, a yeah. software programmer. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I, I can't. Think I think. Of well, one. they're they're on they're on the top of my head at the moment because I'm going. I'm thinking about just popping by that anti-lockdown protest that's happening in London in a few days' time and maybe reporting on that. But oh well, yes, yes. No, well, when well, where is it? It's in Hyde Park, I think, and there are rumours it's going to be broken up by police. But when you look into yeah. it, these people, you know, they're anti-lockdown, but for the wrong reasons. They think that this is some kind of big vaccination thing. You know, they think Bill Gates is involved. They think George Soros is involved. They think Israel's involved. Well, they think know, it's about how you, Well, how do you know, how do you know, how do you know that, that the Bill Gates um, story isn't, isn't I Well, I know. It's, I mean, it's Occam's razor, isn't it, though? It's like David Aranovich writes this book in in his book on conspiracy theories, where he says you will never beat a 9-11 conspiracy theorist in a debate because they will read, they will have read more about 9-11 than you ever will. But they will have read it with, you know. I went on, I went on a panel, oh, sorry, not a panel, when, when, when I, 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 I've got a sort of soft spot for David Aronovich. I, I like him as a person anyway. Yeah. Um, when, when his book came out, I did a, a sort of an interview chat type thing with him at the foreign correspondence club, yep. club whatever it's oh, called the, you know the one in west place. london yeah, i know what you mean yeah and frontline isn't it what yeah the frontline club and what what put me off the book was that he actually brands as conspiracy theorists people who are skeptical about climate change and i'm thinking well actually no it's not yeah. a conspiracy theory it's a, it's a fact so i'm very i'm very wary of again, I think you're showing your colours there, uh, and and as you did in your yeah, early remark yeah. about, you, about I, the I idea was that there were two means, about the kind one, of you know, the, yeah. the charming literate kind of writer about culture. Yeah, yeah, but 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 when you think that actually it's cost me my job at the Spectator, um, it's a bit of a sore well, point. Well, we, we um, are, you know, I don't yeah, have you and I, I are now back page boys at the Spectator. We write for Igor in the arts section, you know, which is. Well, I yeah, but I, I always had the job on the arts section. That was my first job, the TV column. But then I didn't. Then I had the me column, which is of course a, a more of a yeah. coveted thing. Um, you when you're free to write out whatever you like, and I, but I suppose. I'm balking at this distinction that you make. Uh, I think that my writing is of a piece. Some of it is political, some of it's not. But I, but it's all kind of considered. It's not there to, for me to be a, sh- a shock jock. No. Um, and again, I, I feel the same way about the you know, conspiracy theories. I'm not sure that they are. And I, actually, this 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 demo, I think, is a necessary thing. And I don't really care whether it's um, organised for the wrong reasons. It seems to me actually, it's de facto a good thing because it's for whatever reason it's protesting against the lockdown yeah which we share which is a view we share yeah because i mean i've been thinking about these protests they've got in the u.s you know like a lot of stuff that goes on in the u.s it's presented in such a caricatured way in our media but you know you've got these you know guys with guns protesting in um in michigan isn't it yeah i love them yeah, what well, they, they dismissed as rednecks, but that, they're they're heroes. Yeah, I mean, I when I spent time with those guys about two years ago, when they were the three percent movement, you know, and they were the sort of pro-gun, oh, yeah? pro-free speech, uh, broadly sort of anti-government militia. Um, I spent time with about three of them, like three groups of them in Kentucky, yeah. in Kansas, in California, and I, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I think, firstly, I sort of owe them an apology because they kind of said to me oh, you know, UK government, it could turn tyrannical at any time and, you know, your freedoms could be taken away and this is why you need guns. And, I, you know, I was just like, no, look, it, yes. it won't happen. It won't happen. And, uh, you know, I was very kind of slightly, I guess, snobbish about it. Um, and now I think if I ever see them, I've actually got two of them on Facebook, I should drop them a line and say, look, I'm sorry, you know, you were right. 
Um, it's not a malevolent thing that's happened here, but you know, we've we've just seen the population basically consent to its freedoms being completely discarded, I think, in a way that, you know, and when you look at these guys protesting in America, they've picked up on that. Yes. And we pro I mean, we probably don't agree with their tactics, you know. The thing that you always hear is heavily armed demonstrators. And I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, you know, when you've met these people, they're heavily armed when they go to the garden centre. Like, that's a separate debate. You know, they carry their guns around all the time. But what I really don't agree with is when they're getting in the face of the elected officials, you know, when they're shouting at people, when they're banging on the door, they're demanding, you know, I just see that as bad manners. But I think what they have picked up on is that something really serious is 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 going on, you know, in terms of freedoms. I don't know if you saw the Supreme Court in Wisconsin yesterday. Tell me. Where they actually struck down the extension of the lockdown. So the governor had extended the lockdown, just like it's happened here. You know, it was a four-week lockdown to flatten the curve. The governor then sort of unilaterally extended it. And the state Supreme Court ruled that he didn't have the power to do that. And I think, you know, that's, that's what these people tend to believe in, you know, checks and balances and limited power. And, you know, I've met a lot of people on the kind of gun-toting American right that... I disagree with on a lot of stuff, but you know what? They always understand freedom. They always understand free speech. And I think there's something quite commendable about that. You know, they're not cosmopolitan. They're not polite. They'll say terrible things about Muslims. But you know what? They probably haven't seen a Muslim in their life. Um, but, you know, they, they do understand what it means to be free. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because this is my plan. After it? all this, I'm planning to pitch... Yeah, I'm planning to pitch a travel book, basically, called American Freedoms after this, where I'm going to go back and spend time in America with different groups that are kind of defining what it means to be free. Because I think, you know, this has just made me realise that a lot of people in this country don't think about what it means to be free. And there's so many interesting movements in America. Like, I don't know if you've heard of the Right to Try movement. To try what? The terminally ill people. Well, they're terminally ill. And they want the right to try drugs that have not been FDA approved. Yes. So, you know, this is really relevant with these treatments that you've been talking about for the coronavirus. And basically their take is, look, it's my body, my choice. You know, the old kind of uh, slightly lefty phrase. They basically say, look, I'm dying anyway. I want the right to use non-FDA approved drugs. And I'm happy to provide my data and all of this. But in several states, mm. you know, they're not allowed to do that because those drugs are... It might even be the whole country. But, you know, they're not allowed because those drugs have not been approved by the federal authorities. So, you know, there's all of these different groups in America that are essentially kind of pushing what it means to be free as an individual. And, you know, my plan after all this is over is basically just to try to do a book profiling sort of eight different groups uh, who are pushing for freedoms. You know, freedoms we might not particularly understand. I mean, I've never met a Brit that would want to own a gun. Uh, right? Yes, you, me. I mean, you probably would, right? Me. I, I absolutely think we should um, have a, a Second Amendment here. I just think it's... Um... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why shouldn't we have guns? But I think that's the thing. You know, America, it's a culture of eccentricities. And there's a sense, there's a much greater tolerance there that, you know, you have autonomy over your own body and your own conscience. Yeah. I think I, I, was, I was explaining states' rights to my daughter the other day and, 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 and why the American system was admirable in that respect. And, well, many respects. But that what we're seeing is is that as often happens in America, that, that 
different states. It's it, 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 it's like a patchwork of experiments being being conducted simultaneously by different states. Some have more extreme lockdowns, some have more lax lockdowns, and 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 so on. And which one works best? Which one goes down best with the people? Which one, at the end of of, of say two or three months, looks to be the wisest decision? And yeah. we don't have that. Well, actually, we do to a degree because you look at. <laughs> You look at Wales and Scotland and you see that right now they are adopting for the most ridiculous reasons, but this is fully what one would have expected. They are much more draconian in their interpretation of government policy than than England has been. So, for example, you can play golf now in England. You can't play golf in in Wales or Scotland. No. Which strikes me and, as and do you know there is a golf course that is half in England and half on Wales? It's right on the border. <laughs> so I don't know how they're going to solve that. But no, you're right. And that's the theory, right? With federalism, the states are the laboratories of democracy. You know, you and I are interested yeah. in cannabis. And like that's a, it's a good parallel. You go to the US and you've got all these different states with different systems for the legalization of cannabis. And essentially, you know, mm-hmm. the better systems emerge. They're the ones that get the higher tax revenue where the public health benefits are met. But, you know, you get there because you'll have 10 or 12 different states doing it in a slightly different way. And, yeah, I think there's something commendable about that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Now, before I forget, I want you to tell me a bit more about about your your, your lockdown breakages. Oh, I I must tell you my lockdown um, naughty naughty story, which was that uh, the other day um, my wife was talking to a friend of a friend of ours and the friend said you know well, you must come around for a drink sometime um, and we said yes now this evening as soon as we can uh and and i'm i'm not as sociable as you i i'm actually very happy just to sit at home watching fowder or yeah or, or similar uh and I, I don't need to go out anymore although i'm I, god i'm missing restaurants right now i mean i was never a great restaurant girl but i I really want to go to Pierre de Terre, for example, um, to have their their lunchtime special. Um, but so, so when we got we we had this invitation, we accepted with alacrity, and the the kids wanted to come as well. The 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 twenty something kids who would normally normally reject instantly any invitation to go and socialise with their parents friends. But of course, there were there were there were people of their age on lockdown as well mm. um, at the other house. So we found ourselves standing on the, on the lawn having drinks. I mean, what normally would be an absolutely routine routine behaviour, which has suddenly been rendered illegitimate. Yeah. But it's it's extraordinary that, and and obviously it it added a, added a piquancy to to what would have otherwise have been probably quite a humdrum occasion. In fact, it made it really quite exciting. And mm. We felt like rebels against the system, and and righteously rebellious. Yeah. But you must be you must have been having this experience all the time. Yeah, and it's you you know your stomach goes a bit. I mean, I, I got a train the other day. I actually went to see a friend, and you know. <sighs> There was an eight carriage train and I think there were about 12 people on the whole train. But just getting on there, it felt quite nerve wracking. And you'll probably know it, but there's a scene in one series of The Handmaid's Tale where she sort of sneaks onto a train wearing a Martha's uniform. And it felt a bit like that. I just felt like, am I suddenly going to feel the back of my collar being tugged? And, you know, it's sort of, yeah, there is a sense of that you're doing something you're not supposed to. And it can be quite scary. Well, the thing to, a, a tip in those situations, when you're on the train... Um, and the the man in the in the raincoat says good morning to you. 
in English, do not reply good morning back out of instinct of good manners because he is in fact a Gestapo officer and you're going to get captured and you're going to be one of the 50 people who get shot in The Great Escape. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. You can, you, um, you can turn it all into sort of a big spy cosplay. But I think I've is. always been... Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I've always been one of these people though, that pushes the rules. So, I mean, I go to a lot of theatre. I write about the theatre for the spectator. But I was a punter for Edgy. eight years... Yeah, I know. Eight years before I was a critic. And what I used to do is, you know, I would buy the cheapest tickets at the back of the house. Two tickets, eight pounds or something. And then 15 minutes before the performance, I'd go on the website and look up which seats were free. And I'd make a note that, oh, D16 and D17 right by the stage. And then I would just go in and sit in those because you knew that they were free. Um, you know, I've always been... That's a silly example, but like I think I've always That's been... That's a good example. That's brilliant. You know, where there's a chance to kind of take advantage. I generally will. I was in an airport the other day and I could see that it was very early in the morning. I could see that the large, the lounge wasn't guarded. And I just grabbed my friend by the sleeve and I was like, Good, come on, let's go in there. Let's get a bacon roll. You know, let's get a Diet Coke. Um, all of this stuff goes to waste anyway, doesn't it? Like, so I've always been someone that kind of looks for those little opportunities to kind of break the rules where, you know, where it doesn't really affect anyone else that much. If everyone did that theatre system, and now maybe all the Delling Pod listeners will, you know, they would clamp down on it. But little things like that. I don't. So think I've always many... been one for kind of holding my nerve. But yeah, I don't think Delling Pod listeners would shop you. Actually, I think I think on the whole they'd probably applaud that and keep it secretly. I mean, just and just yeah, maybe do it themselves. But they certainly wouldn't. Um, yeah, they wouldn't judge. No, I think your um your naughtiness sounds sounds more intelligent than my naughtiness, which is basically. If I see a sign saying um, this path is closed, I will step over the barrier in order in order to show that I I, I can I can break the rule. And there was there was a <laughs> I got told off once in when I lived in London and my children were small. Um, we went to Dulwich Park, and the lakes had frozen over, and there were all these signs telling us that we couldn't we couldn't go on the lakes and it was dangerous and you'd fall through the ice. So instantly what I did was I took my little toddlers with me onto the ice just so that I could I could yeah. defy the authorities and do the wrong thing. Yeah. But you're a risk taker as well though, aren't you? Like you've done stuff that's scary or dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Because I think this yes. is the other thing. You know, I now see people saying that they don't want to go outside. You know, they're quite happy to live like this until we get a vaccine, which we might never do. Or, you know, they're terrified of sending their kids back to school or anything like this. And I I don't know. I, I was thinking the other day. So before all this kicked off, I spent some time in February in Japan. And when I was there, I was in a restaurant in Tokyo. And they offered me, you know, the blowfish that Homer eats when he nearly dies. Oh, fugu. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I want to eat that. Yes. yes. Yeah, I got totally. offered fugu. Now, I don't even really like fish, but I was like, you know, I have to have this. And of course, there is a one million chance or something that you will die. People still die of fugu to this day. You know, it's very, it's almost never yeah. from a restaurant. It's people that catch it themselves and then try cook it. Um, but I just thought, well, I've got to have this. You know, this, this will be fun. Um, and I was explaining, like, my attitude to coronavirus at the moment that, you know, I'm not particularly worried. I don't want to upset or infect anyone else, but I'm not that worried personally. You know, I would be happy to go on a plane yeah. if we had that chat. And my friend just said, well, of course you would. You know, you're the one that ate the fugu. You know, most people don't live like that. They don't. But it... I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this because the other thing I think about is, you know, I've got friends that are quite happy to use class A drugs. And now they're terrified of yeah. the coronavirus. You think, 
you know, class A drugs could be contaminated. You don't know what's in them. You have, you know, all of those kind of problems. And they spent most of their 20s doing that. And now they're sort of very worried that if they go out, they'll catch the coronavirus. And they might be the one in 10,000 of the 30-year-olds that dies of this thing. Oh, but they never used no. to think, well, I might be the one in a thousand that gets the bad pill and ends up on, the, uh, you know, in the hospital. I had an analogous experience this morning where I went riding for the first time in eight weeks because because up until then the the rules have dictated you know whatever the the the, the, the organisational body that that represents riding schools and so on has has actually banned them from from allowing punters to come in and ride. Um, anyway, so I went back there today and there were a few other riders mm. and one of them was this absolutely she was just panicking every we were all outside on our horses about certainly more than two meters apart and she was she was weaving between us in in abject terror lest she come within the two meter uh you know the zone yeah. inside the, the danger zone and she was she was i mean it, she kind of made the ride rather unpleasant because she was so uptight and terrified and i was thinking well Hang on a second. You are participating in probably the most dangerous mainstream acti- sporting activity in the world. I mean, riding kills or maims more people than any other regular activity, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, I think you'd have to take up underwater cave diving before you exceeded it on the risk front. And here she was coming out to ride and yet panicking about this this virus, which... I wonder what the chances would have been of her contracting coronavirus outdoors when people are wearing gloves um, on horses several feet apart and so on. It, infinitesimal. Yeah. And her chances of dying of it w- w- would have been just, you know, she was a young, healthy woman, would have been beyond negligible. And yet here she was panicking nevertheless. Yeah. And I, I think, how are, we going, how are we going to deal with that? Because these people will end up their risk averseness will create more risks. Like, did you ever read the free economics book where they talk about how 9-11, the death toll of 9-11, you know, you can add, say, 30% onto it because of the increase in road traffic accidents that would have followed because people stopped flying in America and they drove. And, you know, driving is much more, you're much more likely to have a road traffic accident than you are to be in a plane crash. So, you know, you get things like that where people will go into this weird state where they're desperate to avoid risks and they will inadvertently end up creating bigger risks for everyone else and even themselves. Yeah. And I, you know, and I just wonder how we're going to deal with this. Because I walk around London every day, you know, probably two or three times a day. And every now and then you'll get one of these people that just darts out the way. Like they cannot be yes. far enough, you know, far apart from you. And they're scared. And there's no pattern. You know, I, you don't, you can't predict them until you get, not close, but, you know, until you get on the same stretch of pavement. And then, they, and... I just wonder what do we do about this? Because I was saying to a friend, like, I've got no, you know, I don't want to distress anyone. But I can't assume that everyone wants that level of space. Because I started off basically avoiding elderly people. I thought I will give them a wide berth. And then I thought, well, actually, if I were old, I might find that quite distressing. If all of a sudden no one was near me at all. And I was constantly, you know. So I thought, you know, I I think a lot about this. And I was actually thinking, you know, years ago, well... I've been to like sort of swingers clubs, sex clubs, that kind of thing. And they often have a wristband system where you are, but you wear a coloured wristband to communicate to the other people in the club the level of interaction you are comfortable with. 
Oh. Yeah. So my right. thinking is maybe which which, ba- which which band did you have? Well, I I shan't go into any of that. But my my thinking is that <laughs> why don't we have the red the red wristband system? If you are wearing a red wristband, you are sending a sign that I am either very nervous about the virus, I'm immunocompromised, I live with an elderly relative. Please give me as much space as you can, because I'd be quite happy, you know, to basically to give those minorities of people the space. But I just cannot assume, living in the biggest city in the UK, that every single person I pass needs to have the full, you know, two, four metres treatment. Also, also, Robert, I, I, I think that they need to be made to feel slightly like the freaks and outcasts that they are. Exactly. And wearing the be, wristband will help you, with you that, know. right? You know, there's, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying they should wear a yellow star or anything, you well, know, but, but, but I, I do never, I, do, I, I, I don't think that, isn't one of the problems at the moment that hysteria, being a COVID bedwetter, has been normalised by the culture. And actually, we need to, I mean, before we can rebuild this, this shattered society we've got, well, shattered economy, more to the point, we need people to understand that, no, the, your default behaviour should be to interact fairly normally with people and not jump a mile when somebody exactly. comes within two metres of you. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, you know, what if you're someone in your 20s that's been raised by a grandparent and you still, you know, you don't have parents around. I've actually got a friend in this situation, you know, and they live with their one remaining grandparent. You think if I were in his position, I would be really cautious about that because you think you're potentially passing this on to someone that you really, really care about. Yeah. You know, I don't have... So that's what I mean with the wristband, you know, that we could have some people that could flag up that extra vulnerability, you know, to use a word that you're going to hate, you know, to the rest of the world, and we could give them that. But because sooner or later, we're going to have to get back to normal. We can't keep having these half-mile queues outside supermarkets, you know, and people like... I, I don't mind. I don't mind people being closer to me. Like, I'm happy for my space to be sacrificed, but there will be some people out there that need that space... You know, and we just we need to work that out. We need to be sensible. But the presumption has to be that you are okay with carrying on with something close to normal. We can't assume yes. that everyone is, yeah, a bedwetter or overcautious or particularly vulnerable. Um, that is almost a good ending point. But I, I just wanted to finally develop one point you made, which is quite interesting. I think that okay, so you've revealed yourself to be a bit of a naughty risk taker, despite yeah. your kind of benign normal appearance yeah and, and my I, very centrist banal political opinions but there you go yeah yeah and as you know i'm i'm the same i mean i'm fairly obvious about it uh and i think all delling polls are the same actually you know if you tell us we can't do something we'll do it just because mm. like that's what we're that's what we're like but do you think that's the case with all the people who are i mean just okay look at toby for I, thinking about it toby although i i, I call him the cuck all the time Toby's got a kind of quite a, a naughty, risky thing, you know, like, like the, the the way he bluffed his way into the Vanity Fair pol- uh, party at Hollywood. He's he's got quite a quite a naughty streak. Thinking about your other friends who did that, are, are they are they of a similar ilk? Yeah, I think so. I think there is just something, you know, and I've been thinking about this recently. You know, how would Hunter S. Thompson deal with this? How would Quentin Crisp? deal with this you know how would lord byron deal with this like where are those kind of those libertines those radicals you know and i think you've got lots of 
I know lots of adventurous people that have now suddenly become very cautious, but thankfully, you know, I know I know enough who are still willing to take risks to kind of keep me going for the next few weeks. But it does scare me because I, I think we seem to have somehow lost that, you know, that kind of naughtiness, that caddishness as a culture. Because isn't the scary thing, this, uh, if we are indeed outliers by dint of our risk-taking personalities and we're not normal yeah then that means that we've got a whole heap of work to be done to persuade the normies whatever you want to call them i mean maybe it's that maybe that we behave in the way we do but are you are you um interested in um uh evolutionary biology you know mm. evolutionary psychology why is it that some of us are born with these apparently innate characteristics which 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 have not been taught to us by our, by our parents but we just seem to be inbuilt why why are why do some of us naturally take risks and some of us don't and yeah. i'm sure it goes back back to that stage where and and this would be a minority activity for for most of the of the tribe because otherwise they get themselves killed but you need two or three loons in the tribe to say that mushroom looks really quite tasty I wonder mm. whether you can eat that or not. And either they die or they become the hero for discovering a new, a new abundant foodstuff. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, well, necessarily, as I've suggested, those people would be a minority because otherwise they'd, well, I mean, if everyone did it, everyone would, would, would be dying right, left and centre, wouldn't they? That suggests that we've got some way to go before bringing, bringing around the rest of us. Yeah, but I, I think as well there's just an element that a lot of people maybe aren't conscious that they are taking risks every day. You know, I think maybe it's just that because this is on the top of every news bulletin that it's just making people think about it. And I don't know, like, I, I think about these kind of things all the time. I think about, you know, is this the right thing to do? Is this the safe thing to do? I mean, you know, one thing that you and I probably got in common, you know, have you ever, you go to a country, like I went to China last year. I went on a trip to China. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, am I, um, it was a sort of media organized trip. You think, am I lending legitimacy to this regime if I go on this trip? Am I doing this? You know, I don't know. I, I think a lot about, can I defend this decision? You know, if I died right now, could I defend what I've done to go at the gates with St. Peter or whatever? And I think maybe a lot of people just don't do that. They're not thinking about risk, morality. Um, that's that, you know, and they're happy just to take the diktat from the government. They're happy just to go along with the law. I'm sure you're right that most people live unexamined lives. Yeah, and now all and... this, that's no longer an option. Yeah. Unless you want to stay yeah. at home all day, which, you know, a lot of them do, unfortunately. Yes, well... This is my this is my overall my overarching thesis of this entire crisis that we are you know we are in the decline phase of our civilization and we are we are fat we are weak we are incapable of rising to challenges anymore we 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 deserve to our culture deserves to collapse and that's what we're witnessing and there's, there's, there's a few of us aghast you know we're we're like sort of uh, people in Rome in what when was it 450 watching the watching the barbarians come through the gates and thinking god well I didn't want this to happen but but we kind of deserved it hmm. it's a thought um, and on that cherry note yeah on that cherry note um well Rob it's been great talking to you, you and too. congratulations to on your 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 lockdown breakage thank you and if there are any if there are any listeners in if there are any listeners in the kind of shoreditch central london area they are more than welcome to join me for a lockdown drink 
Or, or an orgy by the sounds of it. Yeah, or, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Right. Thanks very thank, much. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye.